0: He sing this song reflecting on your overwhelming reckless love, which could be the no more perfect segue in Exodus 5 and now Exodus 6 of a love that is seemingly reckless in its abandon to pursue after us, to break through, even at great cost to yourself all barriers and lies that would keep us apart from you and living on our own, subject to the dominion of death. Guilt and shame and everything that gets piled on in it. And so, Lord, I pray that we would reflect on your love today of that as a father. And also, Lord, you've also said that you put your amago day in womanhood when you made man and woman and you made them in your image. Lord, there's things that just looking at Exodus 6, this text on this day, on Mother's Day, we can actually maybe more accurately see by experiencing the sacrificial, tireless, enduring love of a mother for her child. Lord, I know a few things more powerful than that. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not let that get swept away in the common everydayness of it. But we would be, as the song says, overwhelmed by it. So we ask your spirit to do that and we trust that you're here. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I will say I'm really glad that we are in this text this week on Mother's Day and not last week when it was all about like Satan and the devil and stuff. We did, like, the very first Mother's Day we had at Soma, I think it was, like, it was like 1 Peter 4, where it was all about, like, basically women being, you know, like, getting abused. It was like, this is, like, really uh, weird timing. Um, But ever since then, you can never accuse us of not just marching on with the text, no matter what. So, uh, if you would turn to Exodus 6, I will read it here, and then we'll dive in. I'm going to start in 522 for a little bit of introductory setup, and I will read through verse 13. We'll touch the genealogy, but I don't feel like I need a test in pronunciation today. Just trust I can do it. 522. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out, and with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob, as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirits and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So, um, you may know, if you've been here for any time, like, I I, um, am big into words literary. I mean, it was just like, uh, growing up, like, writing and, and using words good was kind of my thing. And so, I was... I bestowed the honor in my AP Lit and Comp class uh, in my senior year of high school with the best like term paper. Which the term paper was like everything in this class. You just like everything was focused towards reading, reading some work of great literary merit that you of your own choosing, and then writing this paper. And I just dug into Richard Rousseau's Empire Falls, which is still one of my favorite books to this day. I've reread it and can reread it a thousand times, and just got into all of the literary devices that Rousseau peppers throughout that book. And in case you are not up on your lit comp terms, let me bring you into one that is extremely important for our time today, and that is one of the literary foil. The literary foil is a character or a really anything or person or place that serves to be a juxtaposition of another character another person, a place, another thing, in order that you might see all the more starkly the traits, the attributes, the character, the beauty or ugliness of the original character, the original place, the original thing. And so you know characters just throughout reading in history. If you want to go really highbrow, we can go like Shakespeare and go Romeo and Juliet, Romeo and... Mercutio act as foils of one another. You have basically Romeo, the sad, mopey introvert, and you got Mercutio, the a crazy, partying extrovert, and they act as a foil to see the differences amongst them. Or you get uh, Banquo and Macbeth. You get Jekyll and Hyde, who actually provides a foil to himself in the midst of the story. Uh, if you want to go a little bit lower, uh, down on the shelf a little bit, you can go Harry Potter and Draco Malfoy. You can get evil and good at the same age, the same trajectory, but goes in very different paths. And then you get, I mean, we can go lower so. We can go like uh, Zack and Screech. Or you can get uh, Lewis Stevens and Ren Stevens. I mean, this is about as low as I can get. So if you're like, oh, I still just don't know. I don't know what to do for you. Um, you get physical foils. You get George and Lenny and Of Mice and Men, who yes, in many ways are foils just through intelligence and through cunning, but also just Lenny is huge. And George is described as slight and small. Or you get, again, visually you've seen Abbott and Costello, Mario and Luigi, Calvin and Hobbes. This idea that in order to accent comedy, there's a sense of tall and skinny and short and squat and personality differences that go along with that. And why am I telling you all of this? Well, because last week, as I already mentioned, we were in a text that in many ways shows the Pharaoh of Exodus to be not just one man in history. In fact, I mentioned last time, there's two pharaohs in the story, if you look. It's not even about one guy. It's about who he represents, the anti-God figure, the one who in every way stands against God in the story to say, no, the people will serve me and the people will fulfill my mandate, which is not to increase and multiply as yours was, but is to decrease and to fix what goes wrong in my life. And we talked all about the character of the opposer, which is all throughout scripture known as the devil, known as the Hasatan or the Satan, as we talked about last week, known about in many different ways, but is always described with the similar attributes. His main tactic is to distort reality, to provide you a mixed up mental map of how the world works and how you relate to it, as opposed to the way that God has said the world works and how you relate to it and to him. And then through that distortion of reality, the most common way of doing that is to, at least in our culture, give a new definition of what freedom is. Hey, freedom is not finding the right confines and living in them in the way that brings life. It's having no confines. It's living out of water as a fish, which is a choice, but leads to death. And after redefining freedom, ultimately, he divides. And of course, that's the idea of like, what would be better to do? Hey, we all work with mental maps of the world and we all work in the way that we see reality. And if every way and every single one of us has a slightly distorted view of reality, the best way to never let anyone figure that out is to isolate everybody so that no one talks, no one lets anybody openly into their lives, into the vulnerabilities of, hey, this is where I'm struggling to see truth or this is what I really think about the world. And have someone look into your eyes and say, no, you're wrong. And this is actually what's going on. And so th- he just creates a culture which America in 2019 stands at the pinnacle of as one where nobody really knows what's going on in anybody's life. And should anyone dare to venture over the, the, the long jump gap of, hey, can I say something to you because I love you, even though it will hurt, then we're gone. And we go somewhere else where we roll up the tinted windows and nobody gets in. And as a literary foil to Exodus 5, you get God working out the way that he arranged the scriptures through the writings of men to bring you Exodus 6. And says, hey, I want you to be really clear who the opposer is and what he does and have that in so recent history of reading in your mind that it would not fail to make my character, my beauty, truths about me, stand out all the more in ways that you might be overcome with them and be able to hold on to them when you experience the hard, the delayed, the resistance, which you undoubtedly will face. And so, again, picking up in our text, in 522, let's just go along and not just tell you this, but show you this. 522, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. He's saying, hey, Pharaoh is going to force you out of this situation. Because last week he shows up and says, hey, God says, let my people go and worship me at this mountain. And he says, oh, if you're going to listen to lies, then I'm going to beat the lying out of you. Literally to the foreman who he literally beats because the people no longer can meet their daily quota of bricks and their harsh slavery because they're not giving straw to make the bricks. They say, hey, go gather your own straw. Obviously, if you have enough imagination to think about what you should be doing out of my grasp, then we should make sure that you're too tired to have said imagination. So same quota, but go gather your own materials. It's interesting, actually, at the, Met, at the Field Museum in Chicago, you actually can find um, examples of bricks dating to this time that are made without straw. In fact, they've found entire cities in Egypt made with strawless bricks. And, and so... This is put upon them. Moses rightfully says, hey, this has gotten worse, not better. And God says, hey, don't worry about Pharaoh. He's going to beg you to go. And then he goes on and he starts like talking about, I mean, just just like, seems to go a little bit off topic. God, in verse 2, spoke to Moses and said to him, I'm the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name... I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. See, what he's bringing up when he brings up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is this would have been just ringing in Moses' ears because this is his grandfather, his great-grandfather, and his great-great-grandfather. And he says, hey, I appeared to them And I am going to do that which I promised them to you and to all the people who you currently see as enslaved. They won't be. And that now, in verse one, that hey, now this is going to happen. It's as if, again, everything has been intentionally designed so that the resistance could not be greater The problem could not be more insurmountable so that now you can see the beauty and the foil of who God is as well as you can just forever know that some truths of God, get this, get this, please get this, some truths of God are only seen in the hard, in the resistant, in the delay. that truth will save you when you're there and you look up to God like Moses and say, what the heck are you doing? Because in that, you learn that sometimes delaying teaches something. I'm teaching my boys right now tons of stuff just by delaying when they ask for help. I mean, we, every night, put our boys down and they, without fail, Start yelling daddy or mommy. It's funny. We'll have people over at our house. And they'll look at me and like, do you not hear them screaming your name? I say, oh, I hear. And I'm teaching them something. It is bedtime and they ain't getting my presence back in their room unless they say the declared words of I have to go potty. In which case, they know they can get up and go at this point. So really, there's no point at all. I mean, if they say like somebody vomited, maybe I'll go up there. Maybe. But they could probably wait that out to the morning. And true. You got to pick your battles and pick your sleep. Um, But I'm also delaying currently with my youngest son, Quinn, who we just got a new playground set in our backyard, and we have a set of monkey bars in it. And Quinn is a class A, can climb above his age and height should allow him to. And he gets onto the monkey bars each time, and he's figured out that he can swing out and swing back in and catch himself almost every time, but there will always be the one time that he misses and the inertia doesn't get him back there on the second swing and he's just stuck. And so the first couple times I went right away and I let him down. So he'd climb right back up and do it again. So now I let him hang there for a little bit about the point that he thinks he's about ready to lose his grip and fall to his imminent death. And then I jump in. Maybe I wait too long sometime. I don't know. But either way, the point is, is I'm teaching him something. And there's something that's greatly learned of exactly what they can do or figure out for themselves in the delay. But let's be straight. That's not exactly what God's doing here. Because he's delaying not in a way that the Egyptians would learn what they could do, what they can live through what strength they have, though God will do that to you and I many times in our lives. But he's delaying in a way so that they might forever in a more profound way realize exactly what he can do. Because in this delay, as humans, we're just natural what if and disaster scenario factories if he would have saved them right away they would have forever lived in the what if of like what if Pharaoh would not have given us up that easily if he would have saved them after this moment they would have lived with the whatever the the what if of like what if he would have Hardened his heart had the plagues not come, or what if he would not have backed us up against the Red Sea, or what if this would have happened? There always would have been a certain level of what if, and you know that if something good happens to you, you always think of like, but what if it doesn't happen next time? And so God delays in Exodus to such a point that there might forever be the answer to the question of What if it goes worse next time? And hey, there is no worse situation next time. I can get you out of any jam. I can pull you out of any bondage. I am able to free you from anything, even death itself. Because the ultimate story of the exodus and freedom from an oppressive regime, an oppressive taskmaster, is ultimately not just this moment, but is the ultimate moment on the cross where not only does God free us from death in sin itself, but he shows, hey, what's the worst thing that could ever happen? I become human and I get killed by your sin. But ultimately, I want to show you that not even that is capable of keeping you from what I have for you. His delay is not so that you might doubt his goodness, though we often do. His delay so that you might see his goodness and see to the extent of which he is fully capable to deliver on every single thing he has ever said he (laughs) will. Exodus is the ultimate example. And in it, again, you see that God is trying to say, hey, I I want you not only to see this in my character. I just want you to see that this is the basis of who I am. Again, verse two, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Hard stop on that verse, because at face value, that's not true. We clearly see in Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant to Abraham, he says to him, by the way, the the God Almighty, that would be like El Shaddai, classic 90s or 80s worship song, and El Shaddai does mean essentially translated God Almighty, but then when he says the Lord, and of course whenever you see the Lord in all capital letters, where the O, R, and D are smaller, but yet still very much so capitalized, you know that that is the massive command find and replace system of the Bible, where they took the concept or the word Yahweh, God's personal name, and changed it with the Lord. Which was ultimately because they just said, man, like, we don't even want to like risk taking the Lord's name, Yahweh, in vain. So wherever we do that in the scriptures, we're just going to take it out. problem is, it's a real tragedy. Because he, he came to say, hey, this is my name. I want you to know me by my name. The Lord is not a name, it's a title. It's like if I always refer to Sharon as the wife, but never actually call her even to herself by her personal name. He's meaning to say, hey, I want to intimately bring you in. It's why he uses it in Genesis 15 again, because that's the moment where he's making a covenant with Abraham. He's saying, hey, I want to make a covenant to you in which that I will be your God and you will be my people. And in this covenant, I say, hey, I'm making you this covenant as Yahweh, as my personal name. And then he does it again to Jacob in chapter 28. When Jacob's on the run for his life and has the moment where he's just in the wilderness and he all of a sudden in a dream or a vision or something sees a ladder of angels ascending and descending before God to heaven and to earth and many people think that's the same place where they made that covenant, Abraham in chapter 15. And he appears to him and says, hey, I want you to know, I'm Yahweh. See, one theologian, I don't even know if this is one theologian, just one that I've read, I think really clearly says, hey, if you want, there's a couple ways that you can just distill the Bible down into a sentence or a word. Most of them are really unhelpful. And at the end of the day, they're all kind of unhelpful. The Bibles are very complex and multifaceted diamond. You got to turn it around a lot to see all the different faces. But he said, if you want to reduce it into one simple sentence, he said, you can do, say this. The Bible is a progressive revelation of God personally revealing and making himself known increasingly to a people and through them, all people. It's just God making himself more and more seen and more known. And so when he says, I, I want you to know me as Yahweh, and, and I didn't reveal myself as Yahweh before. Again, kind of misleading, and there's a couple theories surrounding why that is, and, and liberal theolo- uh, theologians would probably appeal to the documentary theory of the, of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Exodus being the second one, which they said there's several authors, they compiled it from multiple traditions, and there's actually more evidence of that throughout the book of evidence. Uh, I mean, you even saw in chapters three when it's at uh, one point it refers to God's uh, or to Moses' father-in-law as Jethro. Another point he uses another name. I mean, it uses like three names for the guy, and even conservative liberal theologians alike would say actually that's that's either Moses as being the author or whoever is the author taking multiple ways that the book had been transcribed and moved throughout history and in the stories and trying to hold on and preserve multiple cultures because the point is not exactly what his name is. The point is that the multiple cultures are coming to see who God is through the Exodus story. But then they say, hey, there's this documentary theory. There's lots of different authors, lots of people kind of just pulling in scraps together. And one of the authors particularly likes to call God Yahweh. And so he does in Genesis and he does sometimes in Exodus. But then there's another author that calls him El Shaddai and there's another author that calls him this. The problem is that's been widely pretty discredited even amongst liberal theologians at this point. Because what God is saying is not, hey, I never said to them my name is Yahweh. But he's saying, I did not fully reveal all of my character, and what it means for me to be Yahweh. Near present example to you. My name is Kent Richard Livingston. Extremely English, I know. Very regal, too. In fact, my roommates in college called me Kent Livingston Third, not because I am a third, just because I thought it sounded like a third, which eventually became KL 3 which eventually became KL. All of that, most of you didn't know. You also don't know that I, every single morning, every single morning, without fail, eat three eggs scrambled with mustard and a banana. Yes, and amen. (laughs) And I'm the only one, and I'm good with it, because it's a low-calorie option to the other sauces, and you can still have it on Whole30. And I figured that out, and I'm just going with it from here to Affinity. Randomly, I switch it up with hot sauce, but that's fine with me. And you... You know my name, but you probably didn't know that. And then there's things like the fact that when I was in seventh grade, I had frosted, tipped, spiked hair and also had hedgehogs. And it wasn't like a moment where I looked at the hedgehogs and looked at the mirror and be like, oh yeah, we're making this happen. It was just something that just naturally happened. People do look like their pets. And that in college, I had hair down to here that I eventually cut into a trendy Euro mullet with racing stripes on the side. And it was my favorite haircut I've ever had. And if I could go back to it, in my redeemed body, I will have that haircut. You will see, and it will be glorious. Or you don't know that I have never received a traffic ticket in my life, except for when I was hit by a semi on the interstate going to a John Mayer concert in Denver. And because the great state of Colorado says that every time they ever stop, they have to sign somebody a ticket. They looked around and said, you get it. And we did total the car. But we made it to the concert. It was phenomenal. (laughs) And all jammed into one car. It was real safe. But I'd already been hit by a It's like, what else could go wrong? And you didn't know that one of my job titles in life was a funologist for silly safaris, in which I was named Crikey Kent, (laughs) which is now getting... Further and further away from people even realizing what that's an allusion to, but regardless, that was who I was. And you didn't know that I proposed to my wife in the laundry room of a dorm, because that's where we met. And it's anti romance, and it's fine. Yeah, I do the mustard on the eggs, I propose in laundry rooms, I am who I am. Accept me or leave me. And ultimately, you don't know that I became a Christian sitting on a bed in Seville, Spain crying out to God because I was in depression and pain and I didn't know where else to go. And that started a trajectory that made me understand the gospel in a way that I'd never understood before. You know my name, but most of you don't know any of that. Now you do. But there's a thousand billion other components to my life that, that my wife and kids will never exhaust and know all of what it is to be Kent Richard Livingston. And if that's true of me, a finite man who's lived less years than Jesus did on this earth, though I am coming up to my Jesus' birthday this June, then how much more is that true of an infinite, inexhaustible God? So when he says, hey, I want you to know exactly who I am, and I didn't reveal myself fully in the past because you're going to see some truths about me in these next couple weeks, months, years, however long this period all played out, that is going to show you more of who Yahweh is and what it means when I say to you, hey, to you, I'm Yahweh. I'm a God who saves. I'm a God who keeps every single promise he's ever made. Hard stop, end of sentence. And so I'm going to reveal to you exactly what it is to be Yahweh. Because here's what's so important about that. The more you know him, the more you'll trust him. Peter Enns, the commentator on the book of Exodus writes this. He says, clearly the focus of God's message to the Israelites is on who he is and their assessment of the situation must be based on, squarely on that immovable fact. I I mean, I know this principle true, again, just with humanity. So a a lot of you know one of our elders who's at Summit Northwest, but he was a part of our congregation before we launched Summit Northwest, Nate Dunleavy. And Nate Dunleavy, I mean, the first time, the first like year of me kind of being aware of who he was, I saw him as everyone, how everyone sees him before they really know him, and that is... Just a guy who always is wearing really dopey open reds jerseys with white t-shirts underneath, like he's still in 1994. And, or he wears a Colts jersey. I mean, he wears jerseys every single day of his life, seemingly, at least at church. And actually, then it was when I got to know him that I learned that he does that because he realizes, hey, I just want to be as approachable as I possibly can at all times. And I just know if I, if I go a step down versus a step up, more people feel comfortable in approaching me. And then I just saw how he serves his wife and his kids and me. I mean, there's never a time I've called him that he hasn't picked up the phone. It doesn't matter what time of day or night. And he always says, in the midst of me knowing how many things that he is currently spinning or how many shepherding situations he's walking into and how little time he has and how little energy he has that he says to me every single time we talk, anything you need, anything you need, and I will do it for you. And I've seen the way that his kids love him and his wife loves him and how she serves and she just flourishes in her giftings and she's just all the things about him that if you ever want me out of this job or want me to take a massive pay cut, just get Nate Dunleavy to look me in the eyes and tell me it's for my best. And I will do it. That man can tell me anything at this point because I know him so well and I know his character so well that I would give all of my trust to him. Again, a finite sinful human being. And so similarly in this moment, God is saying, hey, I want you to see who I am, not the situation. I mean, yes, look at the situation. Look how dark it is because because the darkness of it is eventually going to show the beauty of who I am and what I can do. And that's why he spends in three verses, verses six through eight, he says, seven I wills that are all relating into who he will be to his people and what he will do for them. Verses six through eight, I emphasized it in the initial reading, but it just bears worthy of being emphasized again. Say therefore to the people of uh, Israel, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. And the two things, it's not just the I wills that you should be getting out of there that are just like over again, is I will, I am Yahweh. I will, I am Yahweh because he's attaching all of these. This is what will happen to who I personally am and not just to anyone, but to you. It's like he's trying to like a good father or a good mother. Look their children in the eyes and just say, I'm going to do this for you. Why? Because of who you are to me. Do you know who you are to me? I, I Don't look at the situation. I mean, yeah, look at the situation. Don't look at the opposer. I mean, you can, but again, get your eyes off of them and look at me. And look at what I'm saying I will do. And look at the ability that I have to back it up. Because I gotta say, one of my top 10 most annoying things of Christian culture to me is like, the cloying terms that we toss around, like when people hear them, they're supposed to all of a sudden fall to their knees and worship Jesus. Like we talk about the promises of God. We just say the promises of God. And I'm just holding on to the promises of God. and The promises of God. And I'm just like the promises of God. And if I'm honest, that term just like hits and falls off. Not because it's not a robustly beautiful theological truth, but because it's become so associated with knitted pillows that I can't actually hear it in a way that is, is true to my life. But here's what makes the promises of God powerful. Because ultimately, we have a lot of people that always make promises. Right now, we're in a world of like, if you want to be taken seriously, you have to make a promise. But that only really doesn't work because no one actually believes that you either have the ability or the trustworthiness to follow through on it. But when God makes these promises, he's saying, in spite of all that you see, this is who I am. This is what I can do. And most importantly, this is who you are to me. This is the surety and that not only I will do these things, but any nanosecond I delay or any ounce of suffering you experience due to that delay is because I love you, is because I see what's best, and because... There's some truths about me, some beauties you cannot see outside of the hard, the delay, and the resistant. Again, get that truth because that truth will hold you when everything feels like it's gone vertigo in your mind. When everything in your world has fallen apart. Even when it doesn't feel true, to just say it over yourself, or have someone say it over yourself, has been the reason I'm still doing this. And the reason that a lot of you are too. And it will be the reason that we end up doing this at the end should God be faithful and the Spirit continue to move in our hearts. Two practical applications. Ultimately, this is a call to being patient and waiting and uh, remembering, which I will admit are like the two most unsexy applications that you ever get in any point in your life. Um, but that's what we get with we, SOMA. We're unsexy. Here we go. And uh, I mean, we just have an allergy to waiting. Like the term hurry sickness is like a well-documented like, phenomenon going on in our lives right now. I mean, yeah, it's like if the page fails to load immediately, you switch off Wi-Fi and go to LTE just to see if that helps at all. And if it doesn't, then... <laughs> well, what do I do? Oh, gosh. I'm dropping my provider. Oh, I'm picking up a new provider that will delay a second at one point, and I'll drop them oh, until somebody who makes this better rather than making another Tesla. But the problem is in scriptures is that waiting is very much so the MO of our God. In Exodus, they waited 430 years before they were released from slavery. That's bare minimum of what we can just figure out from the text. If there's no ellipses in there that we're not counting. Or you wait 700 years From the declarations of Isaiah, that there is coming a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace, mighty God, who will be born to you in the city of David until that actually comes to be true. And of course, it's been 2,000 years plus since God said, hey, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, but I will come back. And you can't count God slow. Because 2 Peter is clearly going to say, 3, 8 through 9, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is of one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I mean, ultimately what he's saying here is like, hey, assume there's always a why. Assume There's always a why, because I heard a really good line this last week of somebody who was like teaching this text, and they just said it. I'm like, man, I'm stealing that. Uh, And he just simply said, hey, if you want God to be absolutely silent, ask why. Just look at him and say, why is this happening? But if you actually want God to say something to you, start patiently looking for what he's doing in the midst of it. Because there's always a why, but he's not going to tell you straight out. He's going to delay so that you might slowly and patiently in a way that doesn't just feel like he bailed you out when it was kind of bad, but it could get worse next time. He's going to teach you what he's doing. Ultimately, here's just a few whys that are going on every time. Ultimately, because waiting is a call to trust. It's an expression of faith. Second, it's because we don't know all things. And so we start to ask, what could God be doing, not only in our lives, but in the time-space history? I mean, do you realize, ultimately, the Bible is a story not about your personal salvation, not about anyone's personal salvation. That's a glorious and wonderful truth that makes for a great marketing campaign and is something that we want you all to know. But we also want you to place yourself in this book. And ultimately, what this book means for this life now, which is not about your personal salvation. It's not about a thousand people's personal salvations. It's about the redemption of all people who would come to be a part of the kingdom and the redemption of all things. It's about a God who made all things good and is showing himself to be good and showing himself to be capable to hold on to his promises. It's about a God revealing himself increasingly to a people. And through that, all people. And then thirdly, it requires um, dependence on the Spirit to wait. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. The ability to wait. And that's ultimately... (laughs) That's good because it shows your whole life is not about you, but it also doesn't land and require you to be the one, to be the hero. I mean, the whole moment where Moses is saying like, hey, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips, which is a really unfortunate phrase. And ultimately what he's saying is like, hey, I feel really inadequate for this task. And then you get this genealogy which we didn't read, again, because you don't read them, ever. Like you get to the point you're like Bible reading in a year, I'm like, sweet, this is gonna go fast today because I'm not reading a single word. Because who's that? Like, I'm not looking for baby names, you know? And and if I was, I'm not sure Zekri would be on the top or Nepheg, you know? And but ultimately what that genealogy is trying to show you is it's showing you the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, particularly Aaron. And showing, hey, Aaron comes from this line that both was given grace and will extend grace to people. And so in Moses, it's actually, that, that if you notice, the genealogy is book-ended in an inclusio, which is something at the beginning and the end to show you whatever's in the middle is meant to address what's at the beginning and the end. It all matters. And the bookends are Moses saying, like, I can't do this. Genealogy, back to Moses. I can't do this. And the genealogy is doing many things but it's intentional placement in this moment ultimately is to say, yeah, but I'm providing for you. I'm giving you Aaron, who is of a worthy lineage, who has been shown grace, and his lineage will extend grace out forward in the future, and I'm giving you grace through him right now. So ultimately, you get all the weightings in Scripture. I won't read them now, but Isaiah 40 is all about just like saying, like, what in the world is God doing? And then it says, hey, even yous are gonna get tired, but but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Or it's going to talk about uh, Psalm 40. David feels like he's in a pit and just says, patiently I waited for the Lord. Or Psalm 27, where it just says in verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And inclusio again. Because ultimately, you can read a million books on prayer life, or scriptures, or live in your best life now then and forever and what you don't see a lot of books on though is a really really talked about concept in the scriptures is just wait and patiently wait for your father who loves you and is showing you something even in the delay and then just to end lastly it's to remember the call to wait and to remember See, we've been reminded of all these things before in Exodus. This is not their first appearance of God saying all these things. In fact, that was one of my most biggest challenges. This is one of the biggest challenges of preaching any book straight through, is there's like two themes or three themes that you're basically preaching over and over again. So you're like, well, how do I get a fresh illustration for that thing that I said a week ago? And it's meant to be intentionally repetitive. In fact, the whole scriptures are intentionally repetitive. In fact, there's some theologians that have said, hey, the scriptures are really only a few stories. The fewest I've heard is three. The most I've heard is seven. Just repeat in different details, in different fashions, in different forms, with different emphases, just to give you this one conclusion, that God is revealing himself to you as Yahweh. And that's who you are to him. That's who he is to you. And he will be faithful to do all of it in your life and mine. I heard someone say to me once, I'm really glad that we talk about some of the same stuff over and over again because at the end of the day, you aren't actually struggling to succeed in life because you haven't learned a new truth. There's some truth out there that you haven't learned. It's because the truths that you do know you're failing to remember and put into practice. That's true of every area of your life, especially so that of the scriptures, that of growing in your sanctification to Jesus, that of feeling free, like free, it's not some new truth that's out there. It's not some new way of looking at it. It's just patiently coming together week after week, Sunday after Sunday, Tuesday after Tuesday, missional community after missional community, day after day, relationship after relationship, and just corporately together, holding these same simple truths up to our eyes having sometimes just speaking them aloud in liturgy form, regardless if you feel like them. I, I think I just made a point or had a really good idea. Either way, um, we'll address that in a second, or someone will, I'm sure. Yes, I've had a great idea. Okay. Uh, hey, Dylan, can you go check that real quick? Thanks. All right. Um, and so anyway. Man, that totally messed my vibe. All right. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Um, yeah, all right. We're at time. This is best to just end then. <laughs> because ultimately, we ended a reminder, which we do every single week. Communion is intentionally repetitive. It's intentionally just reminding you, hey, this is who God is to you, and this is who you are to God. So if you are a believer, we invite you to come and take of the elements. There'll be bread that you can tear off and dip into a cup with gluten-free option up here. And if you are not a Christian, we welcome you to stay in your seat because that's what we're remembering and that's what the truth we're living under. And that's not to make you feel weird. That's to make you feel comfortable. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray for you to remind us of these simple yet profound truths which if we actually believed, would truly make us free, would truly give us an ability to stand up when we, like the people, feel broken in our harsh slavery, whether that be to sin or to death or to the own lies that we perpetuate in our minds, or whether that be true external circumstances. Lord, you have said, ultimately, there is much evil and brokenness in this world, but take heart because you've overcome it. And so, Lord, let us not be people that rush past that. Let us be people that do the really unsexy application work of waiting and remembering at nauseam until you come and reveal our waiting to be a glorious act of growing and knowledge of you and likeness to you and the display of your character to this world. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.